Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently published a new book titled Bible Crawling, Finding Joy in God by Journaling Through the Psalms. You can find Olin's book on whipfandstock.com. That's W-I-P-F and stock.com, as well as amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. Let's open up to Proverbs chapter 21, Proverbs 21, and I'll pray while you turn. Father, hear our prayers right now. Fill us full of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray this next hour or so together that our uh, minds would be engaged by your Holy Spirit and really expanded, broadened, uh, deepened, uh, and Lord, just as important, maybe more important, would you enlighten the eyes of our heart uh, to have a better understanding and grasp of your character and the reality of who you are, and not just a bare uh, intellectual knowing, but there would be a, a tasting and seeing and enjoying and appreciation of all of your goodness and glory and majesty in ways that would really be transformative. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, is there anybody here that wasn't here last week or hasn't listened to last week's lesson? Okay, all right. I, I recommend you to do that. This is kind of part two of last week. Um, I decided I was going to split it up into two weeks. I might have should have split it up into three. We'll see how this one goes. Um, it's a big topic, but they, they weave together. I'll do a super brief overview. Okay, but uh, <clears throat> this morning we're going to start with Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 5, Part 4, which is very similar to what we looked at last week. Hey, Jason. Uh, chapter 3, Section 1. But let me read Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 5, Section 4. <clears throat> the Almighty Power unsearchable wisdom and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men and that not by bare permission but such as hath joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends. Yet so, as the sinfulness therefore proceedeth only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. Now, I know that's a mouthful, right? Especially with all the old English. But let me just kind of give the overarching. Like, if you had to just sum up everything we said last week and this week, it's this. This is, this is what the Westminster Confession of Faith says about this very kind of thorny problem. God ordains sin in such a way that he is not the author of it. Okay, And as we've said before, there are times you come to things in the Bible where you realize you're dealing with God and it's like a cloud of mystery and you try to push as far into the cloud as you can, but at some point you get to a point where you just can't push anymore. And from, from my reading and listening and studying, th- this is the hardest question, period. And you can word it different ways. Uh, where did the first sin come from in Satan's heart? Uh, how did God ordain sin in such a way that he's not responsible for it? it it's a mystery, okay? But we're going to try to push in as far as we can. So all this by way of introduction, let's start with Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. This is a great verse. There's so many. I mean, it's, it's really an overwhelming topic to study. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So... Even the most powerful people on planet Earth, who in a sense can do seemingly whatever they want, 
all of their heart, desires, dispositions, attitudes is like water in God's hand. And if he wants to direct it to the left, he can do that. If he wants to direct it to the right, he can do that. Here's Calvin speaking to this. Whatever we conceive in our minds is directed to his own end by God's secret inspiration. So even when you have a thought in your mind, and you're like, it's your thought, it's your desire, it's your plan, God ordained it. He, he inspired it in some type of secret way that we won't fully understand. Okay, So here's maybe the illustration that helps me get my mind around this the most. I'm going to try to get out of a lot of illustrations. And let me just say from the beginning, none of these illustrations perfectly help you say, oh, I got it now. It's perfect. No more problems. We can just go home. All right? But maybe, again, it helps you press a little bit in the cloud of mystery. Imagine an author writing a book, and maybe sometimes you, you have some novelist that you like to read a lot, and so you've read interviews with this person, and, you know, something happens tragic in the book to one of your favorite characters, and, you're, you know, somebody might say, why did you let that happen to that character? And have you ever heard an author being interviewed and say, well, it just seemed like that's what that character wanted to do. That was the natural course of that character's life was to commit suicide or something like that in the story. And there are authors that when they try to write, obviously, they're writing the whole thing. But they really try to develop characters that have their own personalities and will and kind of let the story go where it wills. Does that make sense? And in some sense, there's an honest sense, and the author can say, well, yes, I wrote it. Yes, I'm responsible for it. But as I develop the character, that, that's what it seemed that character wanted to do. That's the illustration that helps me the most. God is the character, I mean, in the story with us, which ought to give a lot of comfort. But he's also the author of the story. So, from last week, let me just do a super brief overview in case you missed it. Okay, we had seven points, and we're going to have even more points this week. First point, God ordains and controls all things. Second point, God doesn't tempt people to sin. Third point, God does test people, which seems a lot like tempting, right? It's actually even the same word in the Greek. Uh, point four, he never tests us nor allows us to be tempted beyond what we can bear and stand up to. Point five, humans and angels have real free will. Point six, thus humans and angels have real responsibility. Point seven, God often restrains people in grace from being as bad as they would otherwise be. Okay, now, and why does he do this? If for no other reason, just to make the world a livable place. And we'll dive into this more as we go. Okay, so there's going to be some overlap. All right, point one today. The Bible presents all sin as starting with angels and people and never with God. Now just think about passage. Go ahead and flip to Ezekiel chapter 28. When's the last time you flipped to Ezekiel for anything? But flip to Ezekiel chapter 28. And while you're turning there, just think about Genesis chapter 3, which is the fall of man. The way that the fall of man is reported to us is Satan came into the garden as a serpent. He tempted Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve thought about it, and they made a decision out of their own free will. It's never presented as God made them do it. God pushed them to do it. Right? They made a choice. A lot of commentators would say that Ezekiel chapter 28 is this prophecy okay, against the king of Tyre, who is this tyrant, but that also Satan was so influencing this king that really the prophecy was speaking against Satan itself, himself. That makes sense? And so look at two of the verses here. Let's just, Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 15. You were blameless in your ways. Now that sounds more like an angelic being than a human king, right? 
You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Verse 17, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. So again, if this is a prophecy of Satan, and I think that is the best way to understand it, notice what it says. It doesn't say God said, then I made you sin. It says, I found unrighteousness in you. You corrupted yourself in your pride. And we could look at other places as well. Um, Let's just flip to Jude chapter 6. Again, when's the last time you get to flip to Jude for anything? Um, This is one of those really strange passages. It may not be referring to the first fall of Satan, but it might be. People debate that. But look at Jude. So chapters are just one. So Jude verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Again, who is all of the evil attributed to? The angels. They made a choice. They they disobeyed. So that's point one. Point two, all people apart from Christ are dead in their sins. And let me... If you don't like fully, deeply get your mind all the way around this point, the rest of this doesn't make sense. This is is maybe the one that if you want to study this more, I'd say start here and go deep. Total depravity. And I say start here and go deep because once you get this, it starts to make a lot more sense of everything else. And in some sense, this is the easiest point to get. We don't like it emotionally. We kind of revolt against it psychologically. But if we're, if we're intellectually honest with our own experience and the evidence we see, you can't argue against it. It's just absolutely true. It's written all over the world. It's written all over your own life. Um, let's go to Romans chapter 3. This is the most powerful passage about this. Romans chapter 3, starting verse 10. As it is written, and Paul's just going to line up all these Old Testament quotes to prove his point. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And again, you might say, but no, I know a friend and he's seeking for God. He said he's trying Buddha. I think Jacob was talking about somebody last week, right? That said, like, I'm trying Hinduism out for a year and then I'm going to try Christianity out for, you know, some kind of weirdness like that. That guy's seeking for God. Here's what Luther said. Nobody seeks for God in the way that he wants to be sought after. If somebody's seeking after the one true genuine God, it's because God sought him first. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. I think we've talked about this in here before. And again, that point's pretty easy. It's basically saying all people are liars. And who wants to disagree with that, right? Everybody's told a lie at some point. You, you think of the most righteous person you know, whether it's your pastor or your grandma, I don't care, and go ask them, you ever told any kind of lie, any kind of deception? And they'll either tell you the truth that they have or they'll lie to you about it. So um, now this is where it gets hard. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. What that's saying is harder for us to swallow. Everybody is a murderer at heart level, apart from restraining grace of God. It's hard until you study history. 
You study history enough, and it's really obvious. I don't know how many of y'all listen to Bill Maher. I mean, he's not exactly a, a Christian apologist. Um, and he, you know, but one of the things that he will say oftentimes is, the human race, we're just bad people. You know? We just we 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 are we are messed up people. I don't. I think he's an atheist. He didn't believe in God. But part of what he repeatedly will say is, "You just look at humans. We're we're bad people, and we are. We're wicked people. If the constraints of society, right, the constraints of government, were removed, and it was just mob rule and chaos, what might every single one of us be reduced to really quickly?" Okay. Yep. Uh, the movie The Dark Knight, I don't, I don't know how many of you have seen that. I mean, p- part of what I think made Heath Ledger's uh, portrayal of the Joker so uh, powerful is I really think it was a great picture of what Satan's life like. And do you remember there's a, there's a part where he said, you know, if you remove all the rules, these civilized people, they'll eat each other. You know, and part of kind of the moral of Dark Knight is, no, people are really nice if you give them a chance. And it's like, that's a nice moral in the movie, right? But it's like, it ain't reality. Apart from the restraining grace of Christ, it's absolutely true. You take away civilization, and people will do whatever it takes to protect themselves. They'll turn into animals, apart from the grace of Christ. Verse 17, the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Okay. Um, we may not think of ourselves or others as that bad, but, but, but here's the one that really matters, right? The murder seems really bad, but here's the worst thing, the last thing. There is no fear of God before their eyes. People don't respect God. People don't honor God. People don't tremble before all the God. Imagine a child growing up in a great family, like a near-perfect family. They love this child. They give everything to this child. They provide for this child. I mean, they just, they're just they great parents. But the child, especially maybe when he hits his teenage years, just a bad attitude, right? Unfortunately, some of y'all may start thinking, like, oh, this sounds like my life when I was a kid, right? Just a bad attitude. And he's not even overtly rebellious. He's not out there drinking and partying and, you know, selling drugs or anything. But he just is a selfish, aloof, condescending, arrogant, you know, I don't want to talk to my parents. I don't have anything to do with them. I think they're old. I don't think they're cool. He's taking all the benefits that they're giving him, but then he's trying to ignore them as much as he can. He just wants to get away from them. You see the arrogance there? You see the problem? It's like they've given you life. They've given you a great life. They've given you everything. And you may not be some wild, wicked, Hitler-like rebel, but just your arrogant attitude to ignore them is really terrible. And that's how most of humanity lives on planet Earth. They may not actually be killing people, but their attitude towards God and just ignoring God in some sense is even worse than murdering other human beings. Okay. Okay, um, point three, and we're going to spend some time on this one. This gets to a lot of the question you were asking last week, Connor. Sometimes God removes his restraining grace. Remember where we ended last week. God in his grace oftentimes is restraining people, and not just Christians, not just true believers in Yahweh, but oftentimes God is restraining pagans from living their full paganhood 
just to make the world a more livable place. That's part of his grace. But sometimes it's like he just starts taking away seemingly all of his restraining grace. So let's go to Exodus. There's a lot of places we could look at this, but the classic story would be Exodus, okay? There's a lot here. Um, We're not necessarily going to look at all of it, but we're going to look at enough of it to get a taste of it. So let's look in Exodus chapter 3, verse 19. Start here, the call of Moses. You know, God is telling Moses, I want you to go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. That's the goal. But God's speaking to Moses, Exodus chapter 3, verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Now, based on verse 19, does it sound like it's Pharaoh's will and desire not to let the people go? Yeah, it sounds like it's Pharaoh's decision. Which, let's just be honest. If you were a monarch of an empire and you had a whole nation as slaves to work for you, to build the pyramids, would you want to let those people go? Again, you're not a nice, civilized, postmodern person, you know, who's all fired up about human rights. You, you think you're a god. Mm-hmm. And I got about three million people that work for me for free. Why would I want to let these people go? Just because some 80-year-old dude with a beard and a staff comes out of the desert and says, no way. Mm-hmm. Makes total sense, total logic. Chapter 4, verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now this is where it starts to get problematic, right? Because oh, yeah. if you just take that verse, you can say, Well, it sounds like Pharaoh is this super nice guy. <laughs> he was trying to do the right thing the whole time. But old God was just a meanie and came in and made Pharaoh wicked. Okay? Listen, you've got to interpret the Bible in light of the Bible. Let's just keep going here. So uh, go to chapter 5, verse 2. This is kind of the first time Moses and Pharaoh meet to talk about this whole issue. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? Then I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. It's exactly the response. Who is your deity? I never even heard of this guy, Yahweh. I don't know him. I'm not listening to him. I got my own gods. Chapter 7. Look at verse 3. God speaking. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Skip down to verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. What's different in verse 14 than verses Three that we just looked at. He almost like kind of puts a now on Pharaoh, like he's refusing. Right. It, it almost seems like, wait, did you do it or does he do it? Or, yeah. There's a shift. Yeah. Okay. There, there are times where God says, I am going to harden his heart. It's very clear. Mm-hmm. And there's other times like this where it says, hey, his heart's hardened. Keep going. Uh, 22. 722. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So again, it's like he's hard and he stays hard. When he sees like, hey, you can do miracles, but so what? So can my magicians. So I'm not softening for that. He stays hard. Chapter 8, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So this is when the frogs come. He's like, please have mercy. 
Moses prays, the frogs leave, and then it says, what's different about verse 15? This time it clearly says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, right? Now, here's the interesting thing. You can keep doing this all the way through chapter 14. We won't take the time to do it. And what you're going to find is, there's about five times where it very clearly says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, or God said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And then there's five or six times where it says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then there's two or three times where it's kind of like that middle thing, where it says, uh, his heart was hardened, or his heart remained hardened. And here's the picture it's presenting. They were in total partnership in hardening Pharaoh's heart. God and Pharaoh were in partnership hardening his heart. Now, here's the even more interesting thing. You really study the word in the Hebrew. The word harden. When we think of harden, we think of what's a lack of compassion. That's kind of the way it plays out in English. That's not the main thing it meant back then. The main thing it meant in Hebrew was resolve, a stubbornness. It could be used in a positive way, like you're having to stand and fight in battle, and it's like, be strong, be resolved, don't back down against the enemy troops. Or if you're resisting God, it can obviously be a bad thing. You're stubborn against God's will. So in some sense, it's saying, God was saying, I'm going to give Pharaoh the strength that he wants, that he needs, so that he can resist me. Just a lot of quotes here, okay? Calvin, as if the two statements did not perfectly agree. Although in divers ways, that man, while he is acted upon by God, yet at the same time, he acts upon himself. Man stands under the devil's power, and indeed, willingly, we posit a distinction between compulsion and necessity from which it appears that man, while sins of a necessity, yet no sins, yet sins no less voluntarily. Okay? Yeah, God ordained it, he had to do it, and yet it's what he wanted to do. Here's a commentator named Alexander. Strengthening someone's heart is giving them the willpower or determination to do what they have already decided when other factors might pressure them into doing otherwise. You hear that? That's, that's really helpful. Somebody says, I want to do this. I mean, think of, have you ever been in a situation where like, I want to do this, right? I want to start a new diet, but I don't have the willpower to do it. If somebody could say, I'm going to strengthen your willpower to stand strong, even when somebody brings in the hot, fresh donuts. In a sense, Pharaoh wanted to risk against God. And God, God's like, in a sense, I'll help you. I'll give you the strength to do it. Here's another guy named Cougar Cox. Okay, that was his literal last name, I think. It is about giving him the boldness or courage to do what he most desires. The Lord gave Pharaoh the strength of will to go on opposing him in accord with Pharaoh's deepest desires. There's another guy named Kaiser. There is no suggestion in Exodus 4 through 14 that he secretly influenced Pharaoh's will or forced a stubborn resolution, which otherwise was incompatible with Pharaoh's basic nature and disposition. Right? He helped Pharaoh do exactly what Pharaoh wanted to do. Driver says, God thus hardens him only because he first hardened himself. Oh. It is a problem of theological interpretation, not one of history or fact. Right? We have a hard time getting our mind around it, but this is what actually happened in history. And then here's Driver again. The means by which God hardens a man is not necessarily by any extraordinary intervention on his part. It may be by the ordinary experiences of life operating through the principles and character of human nature 
which are of his appointment. I mean, here, here's kind of my summary. It's not hard for God to harden somebody in their sin. And I think the best biblical way to understand it, in light of every, you've got to interpret the Bible in light of the Bible. That's why we got nine points to get through all this. It's God removing his restraining grace. I've been holding you back, and I'm not going to hold you back any longer. Um, all right. have a lot of movies today as well. Uh, how many of you have seen the, the Troy movie with Brad Pitt? I don't know, 10, 15 years old. Do you remember when, I think it's Achilles is fighting Hector? I think, is that right? And at one point, Hector trips over a rock, and Achilles says, get up. I'll let you get up. And he had the power. Right? He, he could have won the fight right there and killed him. He had total power over him. But he stepped back and said, I'll let you get up. And what did Hector want to do? He wanted to get up and fight. It wasn't like you're making me do something I don't want to do. He wanted to get up and fight for his life. It's a good picture. God has total power. It's his favorite. Do you want to resist me? <laughs> okay, buddy. I'll let you resist me. There's a lot of other examples, it, biblically, but we, this is the biggest. We won't take time to look at the other ones, okay? Um, so, let's go to, uh, well, let's go to point four, okay? Blindness and hardness in sin are one way God punishes the sins we've already done. Okay, so uh, go back to Romans chapter 1. Again, imagine in parenting, I, I'll give you a true story, okay? This is not even a hypothetical. This is years ago when my oldest son was really young. I don't remember exactly how old, you know, old enough to learn how to swim. So what's that, four or five maybe? He, he could swim. And we were at my parents' house who live in South Georgia at, during winter. I think we were there for Christmas. So it's, it's cold, but it's South Georgia, so it's not really that cold, right? Uh, and so they have a pool in the backyard. And he kept saying, Dad, I want to go swimming. I'm like, buddy. You don't want to go swimming. It's way too cold. No, Dad, it feels great out here. I know. He's like, I'm putting my foot in the water. It feels fine to me. I'll be fine. I'm like, buddy, trust me. I have more wisdom in this thing. It doesn't feel that cold outside. You get into the pool, it's going to be freezing, like painfully cold. No, Dad, it's going to be fine. You know, right? He just keeps on, Dad, I know what I'm talking about. What do you think I finally did? I said, Knock it out, buddy. Strip down to your little tidy whities and jump in the pool and see how long you last. You know, to the horror of my wife standing inside the kitchen. And he, he lasted about three seconds. And he gets out and he's shivering and he's blue and his, you know, his little teeth are chatting. Why'd you let me do that, Dad? Because you wanted to do it. Now, there's a sense in which the punishment, and listen, this is kind of a side note. It, it just as a parent, one of the best ways that you can parent is not have to bring arbitrary consequences into your kid's life but find ways to let them suffer the natural consequences of their own selfish, stupid decisions. Does that make sense? Life is a great teacher, if you'll let it be. That's why helicopter parents are so bad, right? They're, they're ruining the natural consequences. And it's like, one day your kid's going to find out when mommy's not there to save him. God's a great parent. And one of the most natural consequences that he can give to our arrogant rejection of him is to say, oh, you want to live as though I'm not real? As though I don't matter? As though I don't have more wisdom than you? Knock yourself out. Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 18. 
for the wrath of God. So we're talking about wrath. We're talking about punishment. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. How did this whole thing start? Certainly with Adam and Eve. Certainly I think you can say with Satan. They had the truth, but they didn't want to live in light of the truth, so they suppressed it. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. I think it's highly likely Paul was meditating on Genesis 3 when he wrote Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Imagine when Adam and Eve had been in the garden. God, you're amazing. Thank you, God. We have a thousand trees we can eat from. Right? The heart soil of gratitude in your heart is the best kind of soil that just naturally chokes out the weeds of temptation. But you don't have enough gratitude, it's amazing how many weeds of temptation can start to spring up. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God, what's the punishment? Gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Three times. The punishment is you don't acknowledge me, you don't thank me, you don't honor me. I'll just give you up to what you already want to do. I'll let you go. Side note, I may have said this in here before, but it's a good little warning for us. If there's ever a time in your life where you're playing around with some secret sin and you kind of think, I'm getting away with it. There haven't been any consequences. What our sinful brain often tells us is maybe God doesn't matter that much. And he's kind of, he's, he's letting you enjoy some of the pleasures of sin for a season. It might be that God's given you up to it. And you ought to be really humble and sober-minded and repent. Okay. Um, here's Calvin again. They are poor speculators who refer to it mere bare permission. He not only withdraws the grace of his spirit, but he delivers to Satan those whom he knows to be deserving of blindness of mind and obstinacy of heart. His hardness of heart was voluntary. This is He's talking about Pharaoh here still. He gave over as a slave to Satan a reprobate who was willingly devoted to his own destruction. I mean, my guess is most of us have had at least one friend in life. Maybe a drug addiction. Right? Maybe a porn addiction. I don't know. That you're desperately trying to help. But as you try to get in the deep end and help them, you start to see it's almost like they are devoted to their own destruction. 
They're so blind. They're so hard. They're so committed to their own way. You can just see the stupid, and it's almost like I'm trying to do everything I can to bend their will back in a gracious way. But it's like they are, they are willfully choosing to kill themselves. Right? Again, as much as there's a mystery theologically, you start to look at it practically in life and the people you know, and it starts to make total sense. It's like, can I explain it perfectly in a term paper? No. But if I've watched it play out in you know, people's lives, absolutely. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> lamentations. Okay. We're, we're, man, we're getting like, if you were good at the Baptist sword drills, you'll win today because we're going all over the place. Lamentations. It's right after Jeremiah. Short book. Written by Jeremiah. And it's a lamentation. It's a weeping over God bringing wrath on his people. But I want you to see this because here's point five. There is a subtle difference in God doing something joyfully and not joyfully. And I'll show you what I mean. Lamentations chapter 3, starting verse 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. Skip down to verse 37. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? And you could, we could spend all day just going deep on that. Most of us probably either had this experience or we've seen it in a movie or something. You know, a parent about to spank a child and what does the parent say to the child? Hurts me than, more than it hurts you. And what is the parent saying is, I know this is the right thing to do, but I don't like doing this. And for good parents, it's true. Uh, there was a, there's, a, there's a true story in this uh, Revolutionary War where George Washington, there was an officer that he had actually been friends with before the war. It's not Benedict Arnold, it was someone else, who <clears throat> they caught for treason. And so George Washington decided, we've got to execute him. He's my friend. I don't want to execute him. I want to pardon him. But as the commander-in-chief of this new little fledgling army, of this new little fledgling you know, country trying to fight the greatest power on planet Earth, if I don't have discipline in my army, we're not going to make it. So he had his own friend executed. It was the right thing to do, and yet he didn't want to do it. He didn't enjoy doing it. Does that make sense? Ezekiel chapter 18, flip over there really quick. This is said about three times in Ezekiel, but we'll just look at one of them. It's a very famous passage. <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? God's like, God's like I love grace. I like mercy. I like repentance. Right? I mean, that's the whole point of Luke chapter 15 the prodigal son, is that God rejoices when people repent and he gets to show them mercy. But he is certainly willing to execute the wicked if they refuse to repent. Okay, point six. We want to blame God, but we have no right to. Right, and that's where we want to go. Right, God, why do you, why do you, you're still in charge. You could have made that person repent. You could have made me repent. You could have stopped me from doing the sin. This is what Adam did in the garden, right? 
Adam, did you eat of the tree of which I told you not to eat of? Genesis chapter 3, verse 12. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and yes, I ate. We want to blame circumstances. We want to blame other people. Really, at the deepest level, we're trying to blame God. It's not my fault. It's yours. Now, uh, let me give an illustration that hopefully will not come true. We've got roughly 20 people maybe in this class. And let's say I said, hey, guys, actually, I've changed the syllabus. You're not going to have to write a paper. Yay. But you are going to have to take a final. Okay? And everybody takes the final. And 19 of the 20 students in here, you make an A. A plus, like upper 90s. And one person just like bombs the test, makes a 22 or something. What would be your assumption about that one person? He didn't study. He didn't study, right? It's his fault. He blew it. No. Same thing. I say, we're going to have a test. We're going to have a final. And uh, everybody comes in, takes the final. And everybody in the class makes a 22 or below, all 20 of you. Nobody even gets close to passing. What would be the natural assumption? I shouldn't have given a test. It was my fault. I didn't teach good enough. It wasn't hard. It, it was too hard. You know, I tested you on stuff that I hadn't talked about or went in the book, right? And that's, and that's maybe a fair assumption. But what if the, the reality was all 20 of y'all had decided to go out the night before and study together? And then somebody said, man, we got a lot to study. I'll buy a pitcher of beer for the crew. And everybody just got hammered drunk out of their mind. And so you all didn't study at all, and you all came in with a massive hangover and thus you all failed the test, I could remain the righteous professor that gave a great test. Actually, I could have given an easy test, but y'all are all so drunk, you failed it. Does that, does that make sense? And, and where am I going with this? It's really tempting to say, but if there's billions of people like this, and a lot of them seem to be so nice and kind and good, God, this must somehow be your fault, your perverse plan. You're in charge. You're the professor. You set this whole thing up. You wrote the test. I mean, I know we know the right answers, but, but still emotionally, viscerally, when we read this stuff, what do we want to kind of scream out in our heart? This isn't what? It's not fair. It doesn't seem fair. Okay. We're always looking for somebody else to blame. Imagine a bank robber breaks into the bank, takes a bunch of hostages. You know, you've all seen the movies. The police shows up and surrounds the bank. And the bank robber says, if I don't get my bus to take me out of here, I'm going to execute one of the hostages. And they don't have a bus in an hour, so he executes one of the hostages. So then the SWAT team invades, and in the crossfire, you know, lots of hostages get killed. And then when this guy's on trial, he's like, it's not my fault. It's the police. They were too aggressive. It's like, when you started the problem when you robbed the freaking bank. You can't blame the police for something that you started. Not legitimately. Okay. Point seven. We will never fully understand this in this life. How, how does God's sovereign will and my real, free, chosen will how do they work together? You're never going to get it in this life. Again, you can press into the cloud of mystery. You're not going to fully get it reconciled in your mind. Go to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, start in verse 10. 
And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now just pause there for a second. Mercy is getting what we don't deserve, right? I think we're all clear on that. But here's what we may not be as clear on. Getting hardened by God in the way we've discussed today is getting exactly what we do deserve. Do you see how Paul paints it in antithesis there? You either get what you don't deserve or you get something that you do deserve. And here's the thing. When I've been having discussions with people, and they're, you know, and, and I've wrestled with it so much. But when I'm, and they're like, this is not fair. Here's the answer, theologically. You're right, it's not fair. But it's not worse than fair. It's not subpar fair. It's better than fair. Because it's grace. Because it's mercy. Absolute fairness would be, we're all in hell. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? I mean, here's the real question, right? It, it really comes down to God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. That's the real kind of nexus of the question. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? If this is what he ordained, Pharaoh couldn't resist it. Look at where Paul goes. I mean, probably other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the smartest, godliest man to ever live. And look at where Paul's going to go. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to his molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? You see what he does there? I mean, when he gets to the, the deepest question, he says, you don't have a right to ask that. And that's Paul's way of saying, there ain't going to be an answer on planet Earth. You don't have a right to ask. You're a pot. It's like a clay pot wanting to shout at the potter. I didn't want to be a clay pot. I wanted to be a clay vase. Why didn't you make me a clay vase? The, the clay pot has no right to ask the clay maker why he was made that way. Point eight. We should be humbled and warned and drawn to repent and never emboldened to sin. So go back to Romans chapter 2 verse 4. I think when we see this, again, it can stir anger. It can stir a false sense of self-righteousness. This isn't right. This isn't fair. How dare? I don't like it. I don't get it. Look at what it says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? What ought to happen to all of us when we read this and as we start to like get a little glimpse of it, 
There shouldn't be an ounce of, this makes me mad, I don't like it, I want to rebel. What there ought to be is shock and awe that I'm not like Pharaoh getting hardened right now. That for some reason, I got grace, I got mercy. And what it ought to make me do is say, let me search my life and see if there's any way that I'm trying to resist God's spoken will so that I can repent. That's what ought to happen to us. R.C. Sproul has this great illustration, and I think it may have been based off of something that he actually did one time. He was a professor for a long time. I'm not sure if this was an illustration or actually did this, but he was teaching a class, and after the first test, like everybody made a C. And so he said, okay, I'll curve the test. And he curved it up to where most people made an A or B. And then they had, you know, the second test, and same kind of thing. People were like, we're sorry, we didn't study, you know, it's been busy semesters. He said, okay, I'll curve the test. Third test, same kind of thing. We really think you were too hard and you didn't, okay, I'll curve the test. Fourth time comes in, a lot of people did bad, and he said, all right, this is your grade. And they were all kind of like, we thought you were going to curve it. They'd gotten so used to his grace and mercy, they came to assume it. That when they didn't get it, they thought they could demand, no, we're owed grace. But the whole definition of grace is something you can't be owed. And guys, this is, this is, maybe this is the biggest thing that's hit my heart in studying this, is that God is so gracious, even to his enemies on planet Earth. I mean, we, we just, every day we get up and we just drink in so much of God's grace. You remember Matthew 5 where God, it says, God lets it rain on the wicked and the righteous. God lets the wicked and the righteous enjoy his sunshine. We just get so much grace every day that when a little bit of justice comes to bear, we almost revolt because we've gotten so addicted to grace, which is a great thing to be addicted to. But we, we can't demand it or expect it. Here's Thomas Manton, Puritan again. God was not bound to hinder it, talking about temptation. Therefore, permission in God cannot be faulty. Were grace a debt, meaning God owed us grace, it were an injustice to withhold it. And did God act out of servile necessity, meaning if God was like our servant that had to do exactly what we wanted, the creatures might reject the blame of their miscarriages upon the faintness of his operation. We could say, I sinned because God didn't give me enough grace. We could say that if God owed me grace. But God being free, neither obliged by necessity of nature nor any external rule or law, right? I mean, listen, guys, God is not bound to show grace. God, part of what it means to be God is he can do whatever he wants. And we should be shocked that he so often willingly chooses to show grace and mercy. Okay, point nine, the end is in sight. The ultimate reason God does all of this is for his own glory. So go back to Romans 9. Let's just read a couple more verses there. Romans 9. Let's pick up where we left off. Verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Okay. Just stay there. Everybody's seen at least Rocky, one Rocky movie, right? Because there's like 12 of them out there. 
And here's the basic plot of the Rocky movie, right? Is that Rocky's going to win in the end, but it's going to be like all 15 rounds and he's going to barely win at the end. And it's a lot more glorious movie and fight because of that, is it not? If all the Rocky movies were round one, Rocky punches the guy in the face, the guy passes out, end of the movie, there'd only be one Rocky movie and it wouldn't be that good. The fact that it's a long, drawn-out battle and Rocky prevails in the end makes it more wonderful, makes it more glorious. Okay? I heard a story one time, and I don't know if it was true or it was made up, okay? but it was told to me as a true story, that there was a basketball team that the senior class, you know, that had been playing together since they were freshmen in high school, had never won a basketball game. Freshman year, lost every game. Sophomore year, lost every game. Junior year, lost every game. Senior year, lost every game up until the very last game of the season. Now, they're obviously not going to the playoffs. I mean, they're the bad news bears times 10, right? They're the worst team in America. And they won the last game of their senior season just by like a point, barely by the skin of their teeth. And the team and the fans and their parents just went berserk like hog wild, like just making a fool of themselves for a little high school basketball team, just running around, people taking their shirts off, you know, just, you know, just, and some people were like, what's the big deal? You guys are a terrible team. But they were so used to defeat that when they finally tasted victory, it was so sweet. Does that make sense? And guys, we ought to be so accustomed to sin, to wrath and justice that when God gives us grace, it's like we just go berserk. That it's too good to be true. But God is so rich in mercy that in many ways we're drowning in mercy. We get used to it. We take it for granted. Okay. And let me just say this. The best chance that any of us have of, of kind of getting this, again, you're not going to fully get it in this life, is you have to be God-centered in your worldview. If you are man-centered, and you can be a Christian to be man-centered, but, and what I mean is, if what happens to human beings is the most important thing to you in your worldview, then the fact that God would put billions of people into hell without letting them ever hear, it's like, you, it's just... It will drive you berserk. But if you can, by God's grace, get to a place where you can say, no, 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 God is the most important reality in the universe. And therefore, what happens to him is the most important thing. And if God has ordained that this is what needs to happen to bring him the most glory and honor, then so be it. It's the only chance of really getting our minds around this. Alexander again, if Pharaoh concedes too soon, Yahweh will have less opportunity to demonstrate fully his absolute power. Calvin, the reason why, because the tyrant must be gloriously conquered, that the victory might be more splendid. God willed to redeem his people in a singular and unusual way that his redemption might be more conspicuous, means obvious, and glorious. Man is not born along without any motion of the heart as if by an outside force. Rather, he is so affected within that he obeys from the heart. All right. Let me try to bring this into something practical for us. Similar to like I said last week at the end, there's a ditch on both sides of the road. The ditch on one side would be apathy. If we 
read too much, if we think too much, if we only talk too much about God's sovereignty. And there are people like this. They'd be called hyper-Calvinists. You just become apathetic. I mean, I, the denomination called primitive Baptists tend to be this way. I don't know that all primitive Baptists are this way, but I have known primitive Baptists that are this way. That a mom and dad who are believers and their son's not a believer, well, are you talking to him about Christ? No, because that won't do any good. God's sovereign. God's either going to save him or not save him. What can we do? It's apathetic. It's sinful, right? Because that's not what the Bible says. If you go to the other extreme, the other side, where all you read about, think about, talk about is man's responsibility and will, you will be racked with anxiety because it's all up to you. It'll drive you nuts. You won't be able to sleep because I've got to share the gospel with everybody. What if somebody dies and goes to hell and it's all my fault? Because I didn't share with them. So what is the biblical middle ground is this. It's active dependence. I'm going to, as best as I know how, do my part that the Bible tells me to do. But then I'm not going to trust in my part. I'm not going to hope in my part. I'm going to depend in my part. <clears throat> Samuel Bolton, a great Puritan, he's talking about justification and sanctification, but the quote applies here as well. It's hard to perform all righteousness and rest in none. I'm supposed to, by God's grace, perform as much righteousness as I can, but then not hope in any of it. But that's a hard place. And listen, for me, here's where it gets the most practical and realistic. It's your prayer life. Because think about a good prayer life, a healthy prayer life. You're very active, right? I'm doing something. I'm setting aside time. I'm getting alone. I'm talking to God. I am very active. But think about it. You know, if after this class I go down to my office all by myself and shut the door so that nobody can hear me and I talk out loud in the air, humanly speaking, it makes no sense that that's actually going to do something. It only makes sense that activity will do something if there is a God who's in charge of all things, who can turn people's hearts as he desires. So Psalm 127, 1, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain to build it. It doesn't say quit building the house. Keep doing your job with the hammer and the nails to build the house, but the whole time you're doing it depend on the Lord. D.A. Carson, <clears throat> biblical writers have fewer problems about the tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility than do many moderns. Because they do not see divine sovereignty and human responsibility as antithesis. They are compatible and therefore juxtapose the juxtapose, I'm not saying that word right, but you understand what I'm saying. Uh, the two themes with little self-conscious awareness of any problem. Okay. So in conclusion, I'll just remind us of this, okay? Um, Hebrews chapter four, verse fifteen, right? We don't have a high priest. Think about it in this context who's not able to sympathize with our weaknesses, our struggles with this. But he's one that's been tempted in every way as we are. And yet he passed the test for us. He, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, he suffered while he was tempted. And that's how he can help us when we wrestle with our temptation. I don't understand it. I don't like it. I don't get it. Okay. Look, at, uh, look back again, Romans 9, really quick. What's the goal of all this? Verse 23. In order to make known the riches of His glory. Now just stop there. When you just think about the riches of His glory, that can sound like God's just mean and He's bad and He's selfish. He's just trying to honor Himself. But what's the pinnacle of God's glory? Keep going. Riches of His glory for vessels of mercy. 
God's glory is most greatly seen in His mercy. And so, yes, He has created a world where His holiness is astronomically, infinitely, unmeasurably high. But then also, the wickedness, the rebellion, the evil of rebellious mankind is infinitely deep. And yet his mercy bridges the chasm through the crucifixion and resurrection of his son. And it is the most glorious reality there is. And if you try to take away from either side of this, man's responsibility or God's sovereignty, what you're ultimately doing is diminishing, lessening his glory. And not just his abstract glory, but the glory of his mercy. The glory of the gospel. Let me pray. Father, we're so unworthy and uh, again we know it in our minds we say it with our words but all of us I know for myself I don't feel it enough in my bones in my soul that I'm unworthy that you chose me you chose us in Christ before the beginning of time to be your adopted sons joint heirs with Christ it's shocking it's scandalous it's our only hope Help us understand these things as much as we realistically can in this life. And then, Lord, help us appreciate them and worship you in light of them. And then live a life of faithfulness out of the overflow of that joy. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.